0: The psalm reading today is from the lectionary, Psalm 31, 1-5, and 15-16, through 16, from the New Revised Standard Version. Hear these words. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge to me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let me, let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. God's word for God's people. Amen.
1: I want to begin by discussing perhaps sort of the elephant in the room around this whole book of the Bible. The first thing that I notice about the book of Ruth is that it's about these women. And I don't know about you, but if you begin to really analyze sort of art, movies, mm, I don't know, podcasts, YouTube channels, talk shows, whatever it is, begin to... Realize the role that women generally play in some of these. Recently, we were watching a show on Netflix because we've been in quarantine and self-social distancing, and so I'm subjecting my children to all of these sort of, you know, classics that I grew up with, like uh, The Goonies or Back to the Future or Indiana Jones. And it's just fascinating to see sort of the role that women take in some of these films and how they're used as uh, almost pawns sort of in a storytelling game. Ruth is a fascinating book of the Bible because it's so old It's an old, old story, and it bucks the trend of sort of the male-dominant characters. Now, chapter 4 is a little unique in the narrative of of Ruth, and that there are a lot of male voices speaking, but for the most part... The book of Ruth is about these women and sort of their audacious plan to sort of uh, get back in good standing with the community and for there to be redemption and for them to, you know, secure a way. God is in the middle of all of this, and Boaz is sort of the catalyst that it happens through. But for, you know, a a four, 6,000-year-old book of the Bible, who knows how old it is, how old the story is. For a story that old to feature these women in such a prominent role, it is entirely countercultural. And I think it's a really fun and encouraging story, and we can learn a lot from the characters presented in the book of Ruth. For uh, today, we're going to walk through chapter 4 and hit a, a few verses. If you've got a Bible at home, I want to encourage you to, to find it. It could be under the bed. Maybe it's on the bedside table. I don't know where you keep your Bible. Uh, you can always use your phone and just Google Ruth chapter 4 and scroll along with. doesn't matter what translation it is. Um, I'm going to shout out a couple different verses and then as we look at those verses, we're going to unpack it a little bit today. I'm struck by verse 1, where Boaz goes up to the gate and he sits down there, and that's where they sort of conduct business. In antiquity, the, the gate to the city is like the courthouse. Uh, they didn't have, you know, uh, a county seat or an annex of a courthouse, they just had like the gates to the town. And in these gates, they would have benches, and they would all gather. It would be an open-air market, sort of like a a bazaar, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, And they would gather in these spaces. So Boaz knows where he needs to find this person, this next of kin. It's at the market. It's at the, the gate. It's where everyone gathers. And so they go there. And they gather, and he he brings in ten elders, as verse two says. There's a lot of commentary over like the significance of that number. It's basically witnesses. Boaz needs a jury of his peers. <laughs> he needs people who will hold other people legally accountable to, to the decision that's being made. Today And so he gathers 10 people, and they were likely the heads of the clans that made up the tribe that he's a part of. And so they all have good social standing. And so if they make an agreement to redeem uh, this person, let's be clear, and this property, uh, the town will know that it happened. And they have multiple voices to attest to that. In verses 5 and 6, there's some interesting things that begin to happen. It says, Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you're also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. So this is an entirely foreign concept to us. We have to admit it. Uh, we're going to drop something in the chat for you to look at, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. I want you to check that out on your own time. Uh, it will give you a little bit of background on possibly what's happening here. For the, the tribe of Levi, they set what's called the Levitical law. and the, the, This is a marriage by the law of Moses in the tribe of Levi, most likely. And so if you had a husband and you were a woman and your husband died, it was the duty of your brother-in-law to then marry you, to provide for you and your family. And this would maintain land, property, all that they owe within the family. Again, we need to remember that the family structure and the blessing of land and offspring is central to Jewish identity, and it's central to Israel. It's central to how Boaz understands himself and his role in society. And so there are some complications that come up. Boaz says to the guy, look, if you want to redeem the land, which is a good deal, Uh, you got to redeem Ruth as well. And now you can see the hesitancy from the other party. He's like, oh, I I can't. And the reason why he can't is because it's going to muddy the waters. All of a sudden, if he takes on this other person and they have children and he might already have children. And now he has to divide it so many different ways. And, you know, you get people in legal battles and it gets confusing. And so he just passes. So it goes to Boaz, and Boaz says, I will do it. And then this very strange thing happens. In verse 7 and 8, there's removal of footwear. They, like, hand a sandal off to a guy. It's like a handshake? I don't know. know. Our, Our best guess is there's some other Old Testament attesting to this practice. Uh, we're going to put it in the chat for you to look at a little bit later, and that's First Kings chapter 21, verses 16 and 17. We need to know in that day and time that they talk about how pieces of land would be measured by paces or walking, right? Like no one had like a yardstick. No one had one of those like geological survey tripods with the lasers and the mirror and the person standing down there waving their hand. Like they didn't do that. They would just literally pace off sections of a field and say, you get 50 sandals, you get 100 sandals. And then they would take stones and they would sort of build up a pylon or a, a fence marker or some sort of... Thing that would designate a field differentiating here and here. And so 1 Kings talks about how they would walk off portions of the land and how they would either walk for a minute or you walk for an hour or you walk for a day, and that's how much land you get. And so this strange alien practice that's happening in Ruth chapter 4 And then he sort of, the author, whoever it may be, talks about why they're doing this. But all they say is, this is how they handled it in Israel back in my day, (laughs) is they handed each other sandals to say, here's the land transfer of the deed. Good, you good, we're good. All 10 of you agree, we all agree, good, it's done. Uh, Again, that was how they proceeded legally. Strange, yes, but understandable based off the context. In verse 9, something fascinating happens. It says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malan. The narrative in chapter 4 returns back to Naomi. And if you remember her lament in chapter 1, it said that the Lord had dealt bitterly with her. She is upset. At God, at her understanding of how God is at work, and here, we don't know exactly how much time has elapsed since chapter one, but in chapter four, a family redeemer comes, redeems her situation, and provides for her future, and then the town recognizes this, and Naomi's countenance sort of begins to change. It's interesting, I mentioned this last week, that Naomi never meets Boaz. It's like sometimes the people in our life who impact us the most, we never, ever meet them. I have a a small personal story here. When I was in college, I owed a significant amount of money, usually after every semester my tuition bill was due, and had a comma in it, and that always scared me Uh, because I didn't know how I was going to register for classes for the upcoming semester. Um, And lo and behold, somebody to this day, I don't know who, I've been out of undergrad for 20-some years, I guess. I don't know. Uh, They paid for a portion of my tuition every single semester. There are people in our lives that God is moving and working in that impact us every single day. And we don't always recognize it. It was true for Naomi, and I think it's true for us. And that's where uh, the book of Ruth ends. It ends with some boring genealogy. Some names of this person and this person and this person and this person and all these people. So what Ruth really is, this is the the story of... That they would tell the grandkids one day. There's things that happen in the book of Ruth that are uh, big things like famine and disease and traveling to a far off land and they have to come back home. So imagine when you all get together at Christmas time or Thanksgiving and you hear the stories of grandpa and great grandpa and grandma, and how they met, and where were they when the war was going on, and what happened, why did we move down to Texas, and, and who got here first, and you hear these sort of family stories. Well, for the line of Jesse and Obed and David, these are the family stories, and they involve this central figure, a person named Ruth. She'd be the great-great-grandma of King David. You might recall a couple weeks ago I talked about how in front of the temple of Solomon there are two pillars, and one of them is named Boaz. I don't think it's any accident that King Solomon, who is King David's son, names a pillar in the house of the god after his great, 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 great grandpappy. It's this lineage that he recalls on God's faithfulness and says God is still present here, today, now, for me and my family in the midst of this. If you look outside the book of Ruth and how it influences other books of the Bible, I want to encourage you this week to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament, chapter 1. And you'll find the lineage of a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And there are a few names in this lineage that really might jump out to you now, all of a sudden, after having walking through the book of Ruth. Uh, the first is Tamar, uh, who we also heard about today. And Rahab She goes with Joshua And some other people in the promised land We hear about the Wife of Uriah The Hittite And there's another female name listed In the genealogy of Jesus And you guessed it It's Ruth There's this story uh, That sort of Sets us up for understanding The ministry of Christ And the author of Matthew wants us to see that Jesus's pedigree while out of the line of David is completely unexpected and there are lots of people who don't fall in the category of God's chosen people that receive the blessing and benefit of being God's children in particular these women It sets the tone for the ministry of Christ, that his ministry will be for all people of all religions, of all sort of ethnic groups, of all socioeconomics, of all countries, of all continents. It's for everybody. And it's the ministry of Christ that will bring everybody into God's kingdom. It's the radicalness of Jesus of Nazareth. So Ruth's story is the story of David's great-great-great-great-grandma and grandpa. And I think future generations gather to hear those stories read. And I think there's a lot of parallels in Ruth's story to our story today. There will be a time, I promise, probably in 40 years from now, maybe 50 years from now, when you are gathering with family and you're going to tell them the story of the time that we went into a quarantine in the United States, when you gathered in uh, virtually for church, when there was such a thing called social distancing that you had heard for the first time ever, when you heard the words pandemic, and you're going to share that story, and you'll be reminded of God's faithfulness and of God's presence in the midst of it. And your kids, your grandkids, whoever you're telling the story to is going to say, that's amazing. Can you hear that in the book of Ruth? Because it sets the tone for the lineage of David and eventually the lineage of Christ. It's an amazing story of God's hand of provision and redemption and providence in uncertain times. I think it's a message that you and I need today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.
2: We know that God's presence in our midst is the only thing that we can really, truly hold on to right now. And so, God, we lift up our worship together as the people of God, knowing that you are going to hold on to us no matter what we do, no matter what is happening in this world let's worship together, this God, whose presence is our hope. You are here.